Well, good morning. My name's Daniel, one of the pastors here at Deer Creek. Pleasure to be with you guys this morning. This, this morning, we're actually finishing up on a study in the New Testament letter of James. James, as we've seen, uh, given the title, is giving us brotherly wisdom because James, in fact, was Jesus' brother. So he has ways for us as God's people, as people who want to follow God, to live wise lives. <laughs> and this is our last installment of this series. So if you have your Bibles, open up to the book of James. It's in the New Testament toward the back. And uh, if you've gone to First Peter, you've gone too far. If you hit Hebrews, you haven't gone far enough. That's how you find it. We're going to be reading James chapter 5, beginning in verse 7, working until verse 11. This is the word of God. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, this is a sobering end to this letter. It's a sobering message that James gives us because it touches on some really deep waters, some things we don't necessarily want to talk about, the issue of suffering. So we pray, God, that you would fill us with your spirit to understand these things, that you would fill our hearts, humble our hearts. Would you also comfort us for those of us who are suffering? Would you convict us? Would you challenge us? And Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, minds to understand and, and, and hearts to receive this message that you have for us this morning. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus, whom you gave to us. Amen. Now, I uh, grew up in Colorado, but I spent the last six or so years before coming out here living in Nashville, Tennessee. And one of the cool things about living in Nashville is I got the chance to meet my wife's great uncle. My wife's great uncle was a pastor, pastor for like 30 years or so. So you can imagine he had a vast collection of books and uh, many of which I inherited. But living in Nashville, he living in Chattanooga, about a two hours drive away, we would go visit him pretty regularly and he would let me look at this collection of books that he had. And sometimes, you know, he would tell us stories about how he got that book. He would tell me what particular books were about. One book caught my attention just because of the length of the title name. They don't make them like this anymore. It was entitled The Acts and Monuments of the Christian Church by John Fox. That's a mouthful. You might know it as Fox's Book of Martyrs. And as I was flipping through this book, it was the first time I'd ever looked at it, I noticed it had plenty of pictures in it. And it, in fact, it was one of the first books to use woodcuts to illustrate the persecution of Christians during 16th and 17th century England. And these people were being persecuted because they believed that the Bible, what we just read, was the word of God. And they believed that if you put your faith in Jesus alone, then you will be saved. And for that, they were being persecuted. And I remember some of these pictures. Some of the pictures had men and women bound hand and foot, literally attached to horses and being pulled in opposite directions, limb from limb. 
I saw pictures of people being brought to a guillotine, people who would be hanged on the gallows. One of the pictures that stood out to me most, though, was a picture of a man by the name of William Tyndale. William Tyndale was being strapped to a post with kindling around his feet, knowing that it was about to be lit. And as he's staring up into the heavens, he's staring up into the sky, a caption reads, Oh, Lord, will you please open the eyes of the King of England? Now, I mentioned that story not to be shocking, although it is indeed shocking, but to demonstrate that whether you live in the 21st century like us today, or whether you lived in the 16th and 17th century like William Tyndale and many of those persecuted, or you live in the first century like James did, the author of this letter, suffering and hardship is common. It is something that we all experience. And no matter what walk of life you're in or what culture you lived in or what time or place you lived in, suffering is common. I like the way Rankin Wilborn put it. Rankin Wilborn is an author and a pastor. He said, suffering is the one great common denominator. It's the one thing in which every person, every philosophy, every religion is trying to figure out what to do with. Helen Keller put it this way. She said, we bereaved are not alone. We belong to the largest company in all the world, the company of those who have known suffering. See, but they're saying the same thing, right? They're saying that in other words, suffering is common and it doesn't matter who you are, whether you are wealthy or poor, nothing will shield you from suffering. Whether you are black or white, male or female, a follower of Jesus or not, Suffering is all around us, and it will touch each and every one of us someday. But we don't like to talk about that, do we? It actually makes us a little bit uncomfortable talking about suffering, death, sickness, illness. I was actually reading a commentator, a newspaper commentator, and he said that suffering and death are the last taboo in our culture. We feel free to talk about sex illicit drug use. We even make movies out of these things and glorify those things. But suffering and death, those are things that we don't bring up in polite conversation. But suffering's everywhere. In fact, Doug Grutice, he lives around here. He lives in Littleton. He's a philosopher and he's a professor at Denver Seminary. He recently wrote a book called Walking Through Twilight. And it's a book on suffering, but it's not what you would think. It's not a book about the philosophy of suffering. Instead, it recounts the story of Grutheis watching and caring for his wife, whom he described as an author with a brilliant mind and seemingly infinite vocabulary. It's a story of him watching her slowly and steadily decline because of a rare form of dementia. So suffering is common. And we, we, nobody really expects it to happen to us though, right? And like Grutheis, it comes upon us usually one day in the form of miscarriage and job loss or an act of injustice. And I mention all of this because, not just because James talks about it, but because there's actually a particular teaching today that, that says if you believe in God, if you place your faith in Jesus, then you are guaranteed in this life health, wealth, and financial prosperity. It's interesting to note, though, this is our last week in the study of James. Isn't it instructive that James ends his letter precisely where he began it? with this issue of suffering. You remember James chapter one, verse one, he's writing to whom he calls the 12 tribes of the dispersion, meaning he's writing to dispersed people, people who have been displaced throughout the Roman empire, people who've lost family, friends, homes, jobs, wealth, health, and reputation, people who have risked everything and all just because they believe that following Jesus is worth it in this life. And here in James five, he ends his letter 
with the same topic, the topic of suffering. It's almost as if James is saying, if you believe that in this life you will have health, wealth, and prosperity for following Jesus, then the Jesus you're following is not the Jesus I'm talking about. And I can't say that strongly enough, by the way. Now, whether you're here exploring Jesus this morning or maybe you've been you know, a follower of Jesus your entire life, we all have experienced some form of suffering or know somebody who has. So the question we have to ask ourselves is this, how do we navigate suffering? That's actually what James gives us here. He gives us these two handholds to hold on to, to navigate suffering. And he gives us this instruction as wisdom literature. So he gives us wise counsel, like a wise counselor helping somebody who's actually bereaved. And he gives us two ways to navigate suffering. He gives us wise counsel, number one, we have to know posture through suffering. And wise counsel, number two, he wants to tell us we have to find purpose in suffering. So that's what James gives us here. Let's start with that first one. What is our posture through suffering? And James says we have to have a posture of patience, posture of patience. C.S. Lewis, he's one of my favorite authors. You might know him. He is a brilliant thinker in the 20th century. He's also an author of children's books. He once wrote this. He said, our father, that's God, refreshes us on our journey through life with some pleasant ends, that's I-N-N-S, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. And what Lewis meant by that is that in this world, we kind of live in this fundamental tension, don't we? We live in this fundamental tension. On the one hand, God has blessed humankind with a lot of things, hasn't he? You think, just in your pocket right now, you realize you have more technology than what got people to the moon? How crazy is that, right? This has more technology in it and more help in it for us than Apollo 11. I even think of just the amount of books that I want to carry around all the time just on this. Man, I would need, I would need like a trailer to carry what I carry in this. We also live, you know, in a wealthy era, don't we? Many of us in this room, we have well-paying jobs. We live in relative comfort. And this is the one that really strikes me because my wife just gave birth to twins. We live in an era with a really low infant mortality rate. My wife was pregnant with twins and they found out that baby A, the first baby, had, uh, when we went in for labor pains, had an invariable heart rate, which means she had a high heart rate, but there was no variability, meaning she wasn't getting oxygen to her lungs, something that's very serious. And they also found out that baby number two was breech and substantially larger than baby number one. So if they, Hannah would have had a normal delivery, it could have meant really horrible repercussions for baby number one, baby number two, and Hannah herself. So we live with abundant blessings, right? God really blesses us, even though we don't necessarily deserve it. Yet on the other hand, all of this prosperity, all of this advancement, all of this good is tainted in some way and touched in some way by sin and evil. And just think about it. I've, I've shared some of these statistics up here before, but I want to say them again. In 2012, 16 million American adults had a major depressive episode. It's almost 7% of the population, 1 in 10, which is, makes us think when you walked in here this morning, it's a good likelihood that somebody you looked at was one of those statistics. 1999, since then, we remember that date around here in Littleton, there's been 13 mass school shootings with double-digit fatalities and serious injuries. That I'm not counting the ones that are not double-digit fatalities. Again, many of us have been affected by those statistics as well. The Washington Post recently ran this, that despite our technological connection, things like social media, 18 to 22-year-olds, the, the biggest consumers of that kind of media, are actually described as the loneliest generation in American history. 
again, you might be sitting next to one of them this morning. So we live in this world of tension, right? It's a world of tension. And what Lewis is saying is that the reason there is tension is because this world is not our home. God blesses us with certain things in this life, but this world ultimately is just a way station. It's not the ultimate destination. There is a greater destination for people who place their faith in Jesus. So this world filled with persecution, oppression, poverty, miscarriage, depression, this world is not our home. And James talks about that very fact in our passage beginning in verse 7, and he uses this term regularly, the coming of the Lord. That's what he's talking about. Notice what he said, verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So in other words, what, what James is saying here is that, hey, in the midst of suffering, don't, don't gripe against one another. Don't bring gripes and quarrels against one another because that's our first inclination, right? When things are wrong, when we're suffering, when we have hardship, it's, oh, I, when I'm suffering, that's Hannah's fault. She would just get her act together. It's Saturday after all. I mean, come on. She should get her act together or it's my son's fault, right? It's Eli's fault. If he would just listen and obey finally once in his life, then things would go right. He's the one causing all this suffering. And we do that, don't we? But what James is saying here is, hey, no, there is something greater than quarreling with one another that we should be looking to. And in fact, even when I read those statistics, right, we want to turn it against somebody else. We, maybe when I gave some of those statistics, you thought, oh, you know what? That's that political party's problem. If they would just address that in legislation, then we would actually figure out a solution to it. And don't get me wrong, some of those things are important to discuss, but what James is saying is do not grumble. Don't you see the judge, the one who will judge justly among all of the problems and sufferings and evil of this world, he is coming and he will fully and finally judge rightly. And that's what the Bible calls the coming of the Lord. Now, what does that term mean? Well, it means two things. Typically in the Old Testament, when it refers to the coming of the Lord, it's referring to Jesus' first coming when he would come and take care of the penalty of sin as our savior. So the Bible says that Jesus in his first coming came and lived the perfect life that none of us have lived. All of us in this room have caused some suffering to others. Jesus never did. All of us in this life have actually done things that the Bible would call evil. Jesus never did. He lived a perfectly righteous life from birth to death. And Jesus also came to die the death that we deserve. See, because of the evil and the sin that we've done and the suffering we've caused others, the Bible says we deserve the just punishment of God. Yet Jesus himself came and died the sin that we deserve to die for the penalty for our sins. But that's not the coming of the Lord that James is talking about here. James is talking about the second coming of the Lord. Jesus' second coming when he will come not as savior to remove the penalty of sin, but to come as judge to remove the presence of sin completely from the world. See, Jesus told us that his second coming, he will come and completely eradicate this world from the very presence of sin and evil, and he will come as a just judge to bring judgment on Satan, evil, and all manner of wickedness in this world, and it will be completely wiped out by the great judge. 
And that's James' teaching here. He's saying when it comes to suffering, God is not aloof or distant. God has not turned his back on the world. If you are suffering right now, it's easy to believe that sometimes, isn't it? Well, God doesn't care. Well, as James is saying is God doesn't always remove us from suffering, but Jesus walks with us in it because he himself came to experience it. I like the way that D.A. Carson, he's a biblical scholar, put it. He said, the God on whom we rely in this life knows what suffering is all about. Not merely because he knows everything is God, but because he has experienced it. And, and we see this, right? I, I love what we actually just read in the confession of sin before I came up here, that quotation from the book of Isaiah. You notice how Jesus is described in that? It's not as king, Lord, almighty, all-powerful, alpha and omega, beginning and end, eternal God. Although he is that, how did it describe him? Man of sorrows, a suffering servant acquainted with grief. This is just an aside, by the way, but I find it really interesting that the New Testament never says that Jesus laughed. I'm sure Jesus did laugh, okay? That's beside the point, but it never says that he laughed. It does say that he wept. It does say he experienced anguish. And what James is telling us is because this God, Jesus, is our Savior, we need to be patient through the midst of suffering because Jesus, the one who came and suffered in our place and suffered with us, is coming again in this coming of the Lord where he will come to restore and renew this world in full. That is the hope of every person in this room and the hope of these earliest followers of Jesus. It was their only hope. It was their only hope. And he's saying, look toward that day, the coming of the Lord. Be patient in your suffering as you await that day. And I have to say this, by the way, because I was sitting in a coffee shop in Morrison this week, and sometimes I do, you know, reading at coffee shops, and some guy came, and I was striking up a conversation with him. He might be in this room. He said he was coming, by the way. So if you're here, come talk to me after. But he said this. He said, yeah, I realize that you know, you're telling us to look forward to the second coming because I was talking about my sermon, but he said, I find it that we can be so heavenly minded, we can so be looking forward to the second coming that we can often be no earthly good. Maybe you've heard that before. It's a famous saying. And there is some truth to that, right? Us as Christians can be too passive in the face of injustice and oppression and suffering and evil in our world. But you have to realize this as well. In the 20th century, the abolition movement, the women's suffrage movement, and the civil rights movement, none of them were spearheaded by secular humanists. They were all spearheaded by Christian humanists, people who were so desirous for the heavenly hope that they set their energies to real and lasting earthly change here and now. And that's why I think James in this passage, right in verse 7, he compares our role as sufferers to a farmer. Did you notice that? He said, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. See, what he's saying is, hey, as farmers, we can, we can do a lot, can't we? A farmer can do a lot. A farmer can plant, a farmer can till the soil, a farmer can nurture his crops or her crops, a, a farmer can fertilize, a farmer can buy crop insurance. You know, you can do a lot, but ultimately, the fruit, the harvest to come is dependent on something that is completely outside of the farmer's control, the early and the late rains which are given by God. Nothing we have control over, 
Nobody can make it rain. And just as a farmer is dependent on the early and late rain, so too we are dependent on Jesus and his second coming to bring real lasting change to this world. Poverty will never be eradicated even by the smartest and most talented people that the world has to offer. Persecution, oppression, injustice, all of these things we can work toward taking care of in this world, but we can never eradicate them fully. And I find it interesting, right? We make this personal, right? We, we often want to take things into our own hands, don't we? How many of us say, you know, I'll show him. I'll show him. Or I'll show her. They don't do things the way I like. It's, it's that institution's fault. Or, you know, that person wronged me in some way. I'll, sh- I'll show them. I'm going to walk out, okay? And they'll see what happens. But that's why the New Testament, when it describes Jesus' second coming as the great judge, it reminds us Jesus is the one who will right all wrongs, even interpersonal ones. That's why when Jesus returns, we're told that he will say, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. God will bring vengeance, meaning we don't have to. See, that was the hope of the earliest followers of Jesus. When Jesus would come and remove all possibility of miscarriage, divorce, domestic abuse, cancer, oppression, the presence of sin and evil in the world would be fully and completely eradicated. That was their only hope, and it's our only hope as well. And I I love this story of a woman named Jill Miller. Jill Miller knows what suffering's about. She was the wife of a pastor. That was a joke, by the way. (laughs) They don't suffer that much, okay? Maybe a little. She also had six children. She said she didn't really realize what suffering and waiting for hope, being patient in the midst of suffering, waiting for hope was really like until she had her daughter, Kim. Kim was her youngest daughter. And Kim, they found out real, really quickly, her and her husband, Paul, that something was wrong with her because by the age of three, she still couldn't just verbally process. She still couldn't use her words. And uh, she ultimately had to learn how to use sign language because she had this aggressive form of autism. But Kim loved music. And in her fifth grade music class, She was listening to the Handel's Hallelujah Chorus. You know, the one I'm talking about, the one that goes, Hallelujah. And she loved it. And she was sitting there with her interpreter, whose name was Sarah Lynn, and she signed something to Sarah Lynn, and Sarah Lynn just burst into tears. And the music teacher looked at Sarah Lynn and said, what did she just say? And Sarah Lynn replied, she said, when I'm in heaven, I'll sound like that. See, that's our hope. That's our hope as well, that we have this future hope that Jesus in his second coming will eliminate the presence of sin and suffering from this world. Do you realize the New Testament talks about the coming of the Lord, the second coming of Jesus, over 300 times? That's a lot, by the way. That's a huge indication of what we should be placing our hope in. I said I was from, uh, came from Nashville before moving back here. And it was during the 2016 election. I love, uh, this is pretty funny. So, you know, it was right around the 2016 election. So people are putting their yard signs in. And one person on the street that I drove home on had a really hilarious sign. It said, Obi-Wan Kenobi 2016. (laughs) Subtitle, our only hope. (laughs) I thought that was pretty funny. That says nothing about my political affiliation, by the way. Although I am for the empire. All right, second. (laughs) <laughs> All right, the point is this. We, we can often live our lives that way, right? Where we think, hey, this world, all of the suffering here, what I'm going through right now, this is all there is, and I just have to, I have to grind my way through it. 
This is my only hope is here and now. And so if I don't find any relief now, then God must not be active. He must not be working. But the point is this. There is hope. Don't you see what James is saying? James is saying is just as certainly as Jesus came and suffered in his first coming, he just as certainly will come again to remove the presence of sin and suffering in your life personally if you place your faith in him. That is a guarantee. We have that assurance. And now many of you are thinking, what on earth is taking so long? Right? If you're standing at the door, walk through. Right? Walk through the door, Jesus. You're the judge. But friends, don't you realize the reason the Bible says that God is delayed is because he is patient. And he's patient for us. He's actually patiently awaiting those who do not know him and do not place their faith on him to repent and turn away from their sins and place their faith in him as their only hope of eternal salvation. God is patient and long-suffering with you. And that's what's taking him so long. It's because he wants you to find your rest, your hope, and all of your eternal security in him. So that's what James, that's his wise counsel, number one. He says we have to have this posture of patience through suffering. But wise counsel number two, he also tells us that we have to find purpose in our suffering. Harold Kushner is a New York Times bestselling author, and he recently wrote, or a while back, he wrote, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And in that book, he wrestles with what we commonly call the problem of evil, this idea that if God is all good and all-powerful, then why is there evil and suffering in the world? And maybe you've wrestled with that question, right? And Kushner's response to that is, well, God indeed is all-loving, but God is not all-powerful. And it's this idea that he says, well, God loves us, he cares about us, but ultimately at the end of the day, there's just some things God can't do. And he sees suffering, he sees evil, he wants to eliminate him, but in, at just the end of the day, he can't do it. And, and we can be kind of sympathetic to that, right? Because many of us have experienced such suffering that we do call that into question. My son Eli, when he was first born, he spent seven days in the NICU. And when you're in an interior hospital room in the, in the midst of this major hospital and you're surrounded with people who have tears streaming down their eyes because they're not sure if their kid is gonna make it another day, it's easy to believe that. It's easy to believe there's no purpose, no end in sight, and no hope beyond today, and that this world is, in the end, purposeless. Now, I have to mention this. There's a man by the name of Charles Taylor. Charles Taylor wrote a book recently called A Secular Age, and he points out in that book that this problem of evil is particularly difficult for us as 21st century Westerners. And he says that's the case because ultimately, when we think about the problem of evil, we suffer from problems ourselves. In Western culture, because we have such a belief in our own ability to reason, we have a problem of what he calls humility. And he says this, in Western society, we assume that if evil does not make sense to us, then simply evil cannot make sense. See, because we put so much confidence in our own reason and ability to think through the complexity of suffering, he says we feel this problem most acutely. Hey, if we can't think of a problem for it, there must not be a solution to it. And then he says, we also suffer from a problem of God. See, notice in the problem of evil in that question, if God is all powerful and all good, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is all powerful, all good, but also infinitely wise, infinitely just, infinitely holy. See, the problem of evil, this question, doesn't say enough about God. Let me ask you, would it change anything if you really believed God was eternally just? that all the wrong and injustice done to you would one day be fully paid for 
in eternity and that God would right all wrongs. Would that change the way you think about that question? Would it also change if you knew that God was infinitely wise, that even though you couldn't see any reason for it, that there was actually a purpose that God had in mind for the suffering and hardship that you're going through? He said, this is the biggest problem though. It's the problem of culture. He said, in 21st century Western culture, our greatest goal in life and value in life is personal happiness and independence. And he says, whereas in past cultures, in past times, usually the greatest good in life was growing in virtue. Now think, you can't really grow in virtue, can you? If things go right all the time for you. (laughs) So he says, because we put such a high premium and emphasis on personal happiness and independence, we acutely struggle with this problem. So when we think about the problem of evil, 21st century Western culture has the deck stacked against God. That's what he says. And now I mention all that, not because I want to take us on a philosophy lecture, right? But because James actually gives us purpose for our suffering. And I want to show you that the Bible actually does give us some sort of purpose as we navigate suffering, a handhold to hold on to. It might not be intellectually satisfying to you and it might not answer all your problems or questions, but it is an answer and one that I think beats and trumps any other answer. It begins in verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So James here is saying there is a purpose in suffering, but it's not a purpose given through philosophical explanation. God doesn't answer why pain and suffering, but he does say you can look back in history and actually see that God has a purpose in suffering. You can actually look back to the prophets and Job. So let's begin with the prophets, right? What did prophets do? Prophets didn't have an easy job. They were the mouthpiece of God and they had to deliver hard messages. They had to bring messages of judgment and sin and need for repentance. I know even as a pastor, I have to have really difficult conversations with people and tell them, hey guys, you know what? If you are walking in the path and you continue to walk in the path that you're going down right now, the only place it could lead is eternal separation from God forever. And unless you turn and place your faith in Jesus, your savior from sin, you will not know eternal life. And that's not a popular message, right? But it is, it is a good message. It's a saving message. It's a true message. And James says, consider the prophets who brought a similar message. What happened to them? They became political refugees like Elijah. What about Daniel? He got thrown into lion's dens. Some people were separated from their families. And we look back at these people and what do we say about them? They were blessed. That God could actually use evil and suffering in these people's lives to demonstrate that God has actually not forsaken them, but blessed them. We can do the same thing in our alone lives. In other words, what he's saying is God has the final word. What we look at right now as trial and hardship, God will one day Flip that and we will say, man, I was certainly blessed. Second, he says, consider Job. Verse 11, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job and have you seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You do remember the story of Job. Story of Job, remember, God allowed Satan to test Job. He allowed Satan to take Job's property, his children. He even allowed Satan to attack Job's health. We read in Job chapter 2, Verse seven, 
that God allowed Satan to attack his health, we're told. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. See, bitter hardship and suffering. But God has the final word. This is Job chapter 40, verse 12. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. And what that means is God actually gave double back to Job of what God had taken from him in this life. That God had actually had the final word, that God received a double portion. Everything he had lost in this life was more than accounted for and actually added to in the life to come of Job because he placed his hope and his faith in that second coming of Jesus. Jesus says God has the final word on these things. And what do these stories tell us? Right, the Old Testament is not just a collection of like Aesop's fables. They're not just good morals that we can tell our children so they live, you know, decent, clean, upstanding citizen lives. No, they're living illustrations of the true historical life of Jesus to come. That's what these Old Testament stories show us. They are living illustrations of the story of Jesus. Think about it. God the Son from all eternity came. He came down to earth. He took on flesh to live a life of suffering and grief. And ultimately at the end of his life, God used the evil of Satan, the evil of society, the evil of the authorities, the evil of humanity, the evil hearts of Jesus' closest followers so that Jesus would ultimately be betrayed on the cross. And the reason he did that, the purpose was not because God was powerless to stop it. It's not as if God was powerless to stop the crucifixion of his own son. No, he did it because he wanted to demonstrate and show us, people, sufferers like us in this room, that God is so powerful, so loving, so almighty and good that he would use even the most historically horrible and horrific suffering that this world has ever known to demonstrate to sinners like us that God is compassionate and merciful that God would not forsake his own son. He would actually bear the suffering and evil and penalty of sin on himself so that sinners like us could be forgiven and experience the mercy and compassion of God. It's that story. It's that story illustrated in the prophets and Job. It's the story of Jesus that shows us the purpose of suffering, that God has not turned his back on your suffering, but instead entered it himself, bore it upon himself to demonstrate he loves you. And you can say many things about Jesus. You can say many things about God. But friends, the one thing you cannot say in light of the cross, and it's the only thing that Christianity has on this question of suffering, is you cannot say that Jesus doesn't care. He cares about your suffering because he endured it on himself. Remember what D.A. Carson said? He said, God knows everything because he experienced it on the cross 2,000 years ago in your place. Asa Don Brown, he's a psychologist, and he's sitting, sat with, and a, and, a, and a counselor, and he sat with people who have gone through countless tragedy, countless trial, and he said, the biggest expression of grief I've seen, no greater grief have I ever witnessed than when a parent loses a child. Friends, don't you realize that is exactly what God did? He forsook his own son to suffer in your place, to die in your place. He experienced the greatest grief anyone could ever know to demonstrate he wants eternal life for us at his second coming. 
so that you could experience a world without the presence of sin or the presence of hardship. I want to close with this. It's a story of Horatio Spafford, which I think really illustrates everything that James was trying to tell us here. Horatio Spafford was a devout Christian. He was a wealthy businessman in Chicago during the 19th century. And in 1873, Spafford decided he was going to get away from it all, so he sent his family across the pond to England in order to spend vacation in England. But he was delayed because of business that was uh, brought upon him because of the great Chicago fire. And so his family went ahead of him, his wife, his four children, the 11-year-old Annie, nine-year-old Maggie, five-year-old Bessie, and two-year-old Tanetta. And on November 22nd, 1873, while crossing the Atlantic, the ship carrying his four daughters and wife was struck by an iron sailing vessel and 226 people lost their lives. Four of them were Spafford's daughters. His wife, Anna, was the only one who survived. She got on a lifeboat. And when she made it to England, she knew the news had already reached him about the event and he would be grief-stricken. But she sent him a telegram with two words. It said, saved, period. Alone, period. Spafford then sailed to England. And as he was going to the, over the location of where his daughters had died just a few weeks prior, the captain got over the intercom and said, this is the area where that ship had gone down just a few weeks ago. And in the middle of the night, sailing over that, that area in the Atlantic, he penned the words to his most famous hymn, known as It Is Well. You might remember the words. Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul.